Now, for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Good morning, and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk Radio Show. Um, this is attorney Colleen Quinn of the law firm of Locke and & Quinn, and joining me today is attorney Katie Kitstein, also of the law firm of Locke & Quinn. And we are going to talk about a not-quite-so-conservative topic this morning, which is why marriage equality still does not equal full equality for LGBT individuals. Um, and remember, if you'd like to call into the show, especially on uh, today's topic, the phone number is 804-454-1366. We are going to talk about why LGBTQI individuals still face uh, areas of discrimination and having to still do a lot more legally in order to get parity, um, uh, which even though we have marriage equality now, um, there still are a lot of deficiencies in the law. Mm-hmm. Also, remember that the Raising the Bar Law Talk radio show page, which is on www.raisingthebarlawtalk.com, contains all of the prior videos on many, many different areas of the law, workers' comp, personal injury, employment law, divorce, support, adoption. Um, We've covered quite a lot of topics, haven't Mm -hmm. we, Katie? Absolutely. Yeah. And it also contains uh, not just the link to the podcast on iTunes, but it contains a list of all of the resources that are available um, both pro bono, a reduced cost, and then there are certain uh, resources available for certain groups of the population, like veterans and also uh, disabled individuals, et cetera. Um, and, the, and so there are some really great resources on that page. All right. So, Katie, let's talk about why marriage equality still does not equal equality. Sure. So this is an issue um, that I think probably a lot of people might be familiar with from court cases that they've seen in the news. So that is probably a good place to start um, with the 2014 Bostic v. Rainey decision. Can you explain what that meant and why that was Sure. So in that case, a lesbian couple um, basically uh, fought to have their marriage recognized. Um, and then a, several other couples jumped into that uh, Rainey is actually Janet Rainey. She's the director of Vital Records. Mm-hmm. So she was basically uh, the target of, of that, um, even though um, I, I know her personally. And, and uh, basically, she was just following the law at the time. Right. And uh, so what happened was um, Virginia actually was uh, on the forefront of marriage equality prior to the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Obergefell. So in the Bostic v. Rainey case, what happened was the... Fourth Circuit agreed with the Eastern District that marriage equality um, should be recognized. And what that means is that if a same-sex couple goes and follows the procedures to get married, um, that their marriage should be recognized just like a heterosexual couple. Mm -hmm. So um, the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert, um, which means they, they told the Fourth Circuit they didn't have to review it, which meant that the Fourth Circuit decision stood, which meant that, um, that basically the marriage was then recognized. And so we had marriage equality in Virginia in October of 2014. Um, Actually, I may have misspoken. I I can't recall if the Eastern District may have um, ruled the other way and then the Fourth Circuit overturned them. We have to look back at that. But I know the Fourth Circuit decision was that um, we would recognize marriage equality. Um, And of course, our, our Attorney General Office was in favor of that as well. 
So then a year later, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court then in Obergefell versus Hodges then essentially said the same thing, that marriage equality would apply to all states. Mm -hmm. But Virginia was actually on the forefront. Beat them by about eight months. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, then last year, Mm -hmm. there's kind of a a sequel to Obergefell, and that was the Pavin versus Smith case. Mm -hmm. And in that case, a lesbian couple out in Arkansas um, sought to have both moms put on the birth certificate. They used a sperm donor. Mm-hmm. And uh, the basically the state officials said, no, we're only going to list the biological mom. Mm-hmm. We're not going to list her wife, okay? Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, uh, basically, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled against the woman saying, mm-hmm. we're not going to recognize both of you on the birth certificate. But the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, um, we're going to recognize a marital presumption mm-hmm. And both of you will be put on the birth certificate. Right. And the marital presumption for anyone who's had a kid and is married knows, you know, this is where when a woman has a baby, her husband automatically goes on the birth certificate whether or not he's the biological father because you get this presumption that the spouse is the other parent. Right. And the presumption of legitimacy because you don't want to have um, a, a bastard child, right. basically. <laughs> so you you don't want to have these children born out of wedlock. So that's where that presumption of of legitimacy comes from that the child was born of the marriage. And of course, there's a lot of controversy about that because, mm-hmm. you know, um, obviously the other wife didn't have donated bi- biological part to the child right. or anything. <laughs> right. Um, so does this Pavon v. Smith case, does it solve all of the marriage presumption problems? Are we good now in terms of birth certificates? No more issues. <laughs> well, as you know, Katie, a birth certificate is an administrative yes. document that can be challenged. And so... Um, and also that case doesn't really apply to um, to to gay couples, to guys, because mm-hmm. you know, neither one of them is giving birth, mm-hmm. right? Right. <laughs> so, and typically they'll use the gestational carrier or they'll do an adoption. Um, but the biggest thing is that even though Pavon says there's going to be um, a marital presumption of the child born of the marriage for same-sex couples, um, it doesn't uh, terminate the underlying, underlying sperm donors' mm-hmm. rights. So... You're, you're familiar with a case that I had um, some time ago where a client called me. She had a 10-year-old child, and she basically fessed up that the 10-year-old child was not her husband's child, but her husband had gone on the birth certificate. But now the biological father, who lived in the same town, was making noises saying, well, if your husband dies or something, I could you could potentially come after me for child support mm-hmm. um, because I'm the biological father. And, and there there is gray area there. Um so the biological dad was saying, I want to know that I'm protected and that uh, that there's actually a court order because the birth certificate's issued by vital records. And it's an administrative document. It does mm-hmm. not have the force and weight of a court order. And so I, uh, the, the gal asked me, she said, can I go ahead and do a step-parent adoption without my husband knowing? <laughs> I said, unfortunately not. <laughs> Your husband needs to be part of that process uh-huh. and sign off on the petition. And um, I, it was a couple of weeks later that she called me and asked if I did divorce law. Yep. <laughs> and then it was about a month or so later, I guess uh, the husband had calmed down. I mean, here he'd been parenting this child for 10 years, mm-hmm. thought the child was his own child, had no idea that the wife had had an affair and that another man could possibly be the, the father. But um, eventually, uh, this this fess up of mm-hmm. some ten years of of keeping it under under wraps, uh, the husband eventually got over that and decided, yes, that he did, you know, want to make sure that he secured his 
his legal parentage of this child. So we went ahead and we did a step-parent adoption Mm -hmm. um, because that whole arrangement wasn't secure. And so once that step-parent adoption was done, then that dad became truly the the sole legal father of that child. Even though he was already on the birth certificate, right. you still wanted it very clear-cut that that right. wasn't something that could be amended or changed in the future because yeah. you had this court order. And you have the issue of, um, you know, an underlying sperm donor coming back unless the rights have been definitively terminated of that sperm donor. Right. And, you know, some people that don't, if you don't do a sperm donor agreement, then that's really going to be up in the air. And even with the sperm donor agreement, you still want a court basically terminating those rights. So um, there's a lot more security. Plus, um, the U.S. Supreme Court has said all states have to give full faith and credit to adoption orders, but Mm -hmm. there is no U.S. Supreme Court decision that says you have to give full faith and credit to all birth certificates. Right. So even though we have this Pavon case that says marital presumption, you know, should be kind of gender neutral, that there is this very gray area. And I think parties need to protect against not just the government recognizing their parentage or their relationship, but, you know, when they split up later or you have these donors who want to come back 10 years later, I mean, they're kind of protecting against other people involved in this arrangement and this parenting relationship. I exactly. Think. And the the non-biological wife in particular, she wants to protect mm-hmm. herself in the event of a separation or divorce. Right. You don't want to be parenting for 10 years and then suddenly find yourself in, in without, a custody yeah. battle where you, you have less leverage because you were never fully the legal parent. And now right. there's some claim that the birth certificate was, mm-hmm. you know, um, there was some challenge to it or right. the biological mother gets back together with the sperm donor or, you know, it's, you've got all sorts of different cases out there. So what is the current status of marital presumption under Virginia law specifically? So there is a form that Vital Records um, issued and the Attorney General's office blessed that lesbian, uh, married lesbian couple can uh, use at the hospital. And if they use a sperm donor, um, basically that form will get them both on the birth certificate. But mm-hmm. as you and I have discussed, you still want to do the step-parent adoption as, as backup to that. And that form references a statute that doesn't really say that there's a marital presumption. But the Pavon case definitely helps right. um, support that form. But remember, uh, Virginia still has a constitution on the books that says a marriage is only between a man and a woman. Right. You know, and then we've got um, all sorts of issues with our Virginia code, which we'll talk about. But um, so while Pavon versus Smith gives that form more weight you still want to do a step-parent adoption in order to be fully protected. Right, because we have these court cases that are then contradicted by code language that hasn't been updated, which can lead to tricky interpretation issues. Right, and questions (laughs) of the law. We have an unconstitutional Virginia constitution right right now. (laughs) So um, what about this issue of the code not quite being up to speed with these court decisions? Um, Why don't we just fix it and make it gender neutral and, you know— um, not have these issues anymore. Yeah, that would be um, excellent if we could do that. And I actually was on the the uh, Virginia Code Commission um, to sanitize or gender neutralize the code, which was which meant slugging through massive amounts of um, statutes uh, and statutes I I wasn't even aware were on the books. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> parts of the code I had no idea. And um, so, did you ever hear of a nibbling? No. Okay, so that was one of the terms that was used. 
and I, um, I, 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 you know, nibbling sounds like a snack or something that you might eat. And so I, I basically checked with the code commission. I'm okay. What, what was that? What does nibbling mean? Well, nibbling was going to be the gender neutral term for a niece or nephew. Okay. And I was like, if, if me as an attorney can't figure out right. what that term means, I, I mean, so what happened was there were areas of the code. There were a lot of areas of the code that could easily be gender neutralized. But then there were areas, for example, there's certain assistance that's given to low income pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And so we ran into the issue of, um, for example, if you have a transgender um, uh, male, mm-hmm. they still have their reproductive female parts, okay? So they could get pregnant, all right? So basically, I propose, let's just say pregnant person, okay? That will solve the issue. Um, but there were too many issues where, well, was that the intent of the legislature? Do they really want to um, have those financial funds go to a transgender male who has the reproductive parts, who's no longer identifying female, and so basically the code commission threw in the towel and said, we're just going to leave it up to the legislatures. And of course, with our general assembly, um, trying to get agreement by folks. So there were a lot of bills introduced to, to try to gender neutralize certain parts of the code this year. Um, but uh, for the most part, that didn't happen. So mm-hmm. we still have a lot of our Virginia statutes that are not gender neutral, that are actually unconstitutional. Our surrogacy statute refers to intended parents as only a um, uh, man and woman, mm-hmm. um, intended mother, intended father. You know, we're, we're doing surrogacy agreements for singles and gay couples outside of the statute because we have the Parentage Act we can rely upon. We don't mm-hmm. have to rely upon just that statute. But that statute is um, arguably, it's, it's an unconstitutional statute right now. And mm-hmm. we've got a lot of statutes like that on the books. Yeah. So um, for that reason... We're advising that for, for example, these same-sex moms where one of them is the biological mother and, you know, she has a same-sex female spouse, you know, even though they can still get on the birth certificate with this form that Virginia has, still do a step-parent adoption. Right. Even right. though they're both on the birth certificate. Yeah. Um, and so basically uh, the uh, the surrogacy statute's not been gender neutralized. The adoption statutes over the years, we adoption attorneys um, help to gender neutralize that all except for in one spot. There's one spot of the adoption code. So the adoption statute applies to single or married. And with marriage equality, married means, you know, same-sex couple Mm -hmm. um, or single person. Um, You cannot do an adoption if you're not married, though. So we don't have what's called second-parent adoption in Virginia. Um, But there's one part of the adoption statute, and that's for previously married individuals who did not do the step-parent adoption while they were married. So let's say um, heterosexual couples married, uh, dad is in the picture. He's the stepdad. Let's call mm-hmm. him John. John is in the picture for 10 years of Wally's life, and then they get divorced. Well, they can still do the step-parent adoption even though they're divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, the That part of the statute still refers to having um, no more than one uh, father and mother. Mm-hmm. So, that's, so we still have not gender-neutralized that part of the statute. Got it. Yeah. Um, and I know that's also a problem this previously married person's adoption and no second parent adoption, it's it's a problem for same-sex couples who weren't able to be previously married. Correct. And have since, you know, they've raised kids together for 10, 15 years, split up before marriage equality happened, so they never had that marriage to begin with because they weren't able to, not that they wouldn't have otherwise been married. They just, Virginia wouldn't recognize it, so they didn't have a marriage, and now they're separated, and the one spouse can't go back and adopt the kids now that there's marriage equality right. because they don't have a a marital type relationship with the co-parent anymore, even though they are still co-parenting the children. Right, right, exactly. 
So you do see a lot of custody battles between um, same-sex couples prior to them having a marriage that was recognized, yeah. All right. So what about some of these other family arrangements? Um, You mentioned briefly earlier um, intended uh, fathers using a gestational carrier. What, um, what's... What's their option? What what steps should they be taking? Right. So so basically, they'll use the gestational carrier, and then at the end, they will do an order of parentage under the Parentage Act as to the biological father. So the biological father will um, uh, do DNA testing to mm-hmm. establish that he's the dad, okay, under our, our parentage statutes. And then his husband will do a step-parent adoption. Um, and so basically, we secure their parentage uh, through getting that court order mm-hmm. of parentage and step-parent adoption, all done in one proceeding. Okay. Yeah, and then they get a birth certificate that lists both of them on there. Got it. And that's slightly different than when a heterosexual couple uses a... Right. The parent. heterosexual couple can follow can follow just under our surrogacy statutes, but, but they only apply right now to intended mother and intended father. So in order to safeguard the gay couples, we've got to make sure we, get, we do it under the Parentage Act. So there's so, this extra step. Right, exactly. They they have to do an extra step. They have to get a a court document, whereas the heterosexual couple can do an administrative process. So for a lot of these same-sex couples um, using assisted reproductive technology, a step-parent adoption is still part of the process um, process that they're looking at. Have there been any recent statutory changes to step-parent adoptions? Yeah, we've got a um, uh, statutory change coming into place that now is going to require background or criminal background checks to be done. Um, I think that's still sitting on the governor's desk, mm-hmm. which which is really, um, uh, in my opinion, not a good statute because you've got these step-parents, whether it's heterosexual or whether it's a gay couple, um, they've been parenting this child anyway, mm-hmm. okay? And biological parents still get to be parents even if they've got a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's going to become really tricky for our, our foreign couples. So if you have, uh, let's say... A, a gay couple from um, France or whatever, and or from England or from China or wherever you you know now you've got to figure out okay what does that mean what does a background check mean right for a, a foreign country what is that supposed to look like we kind of have a pretty good idea of what a criminal background check and um, you know child protective services check looks like an mm-hmm. FBI fingerprint check looks like in the United States but what does it look like for foreign families that's going to be a little bit tricky. Right. And it is still this, I mean, these couples are already having to go through the extra step to establish parentage if, you know, they're using assisted reproductive technology. Um, and now this is kind of an extra step on top of the extra step right. that they're going to have to exactly be going through because of this new uh, statute uh, that's coming into play this year. Exactly. Um, so what about single intended parents using a gestational carrier? What's their process So like? as long as they use their biological p- part, mm-hmm. um, we can again use our parentage act. So let's say you've got um, and, and, and this, this is, doesn't necessarily apply to LGBT families. Mm-hmm. You know, you've right. got, I've got, we, we're seeing more and more single dads that want a parent, whether they're gay or not gay, right. single moms that want a parent, whether they're gay or not gay. It's, just, you know, it doesn't matter, um, what their, uh, what their sexual orientation is. Um, they just want to be a parent, right? you know? So if it's a single mom and she uses her egg and a gestational carrier, we can use our parentage act to um, establish the biological intended mother as the mom and uh, her gestational carrier as not the mom. And so basically we can uh, get the biological mom on the birth certificate instead of the gestational carrier mm-hmm. using our parentage act. Same thing with the dads. It used to be the single dads would have to do an adoption. But as you know, 
um, we were able to get the first case through um, where our, our client, let's let's just call him GH, um, agreed that we would try to use our Parentage Act along mm-hmm. with the Equal Protection Clause and say, well, if, if a woman was allowed to use the Parentage Act to establish herself as this as the intended mother with the gestational carrier, mm-hmm. um, so, she, so the single mom, Susie, is able to use Carol, her best friend gestational carrier, to, to gestate the child for her. She can use our Parentage Act because it's her biological part, her egg with donor sperm. Well, that's kind of unfair that um, single dad Jerry you know, has to do a single parent adoption. Which so, involves a home study. Right, which yeah. involves a home study and all of that and costs a whole lot more, you know, three, four times as much. So basically we argue Jerry, um, it's his sperm and he used donor egg. Well, under the Equal Protection Clause, he should be able to use the Parentage Act just like Susie did, right. you know, and so, and the courts agreed. And so since then we've been able to use the Parentage Act for the single dads too, which is great. Yeah. It simplifies things for people who are already jumping through a lot of hoops to, to have a child, be parents of their child, yeah, yeah, be recognized as parents of their children. Absolutely. Um, so, last kind of unique situation for our same sex female couples, and I know you were on the forefront of one of these cases um, of using reciprocal IVF, which is when you have one mother who's the genetic mother and contributes her egg to the other mother who's the gestational mother who carries the child. So they both have this kind of unique involvement in bringing the child into the world. Right, right. So Joni and Maria Heyman, who have freely allowed me to use their name, and Mm -hmm. they've been in the newspaper and on TV and whatnot, um, they agreed. uh, We decided um, they both wanted to be equal parents. They Mm -hmm. didn't want to do a step-parent adoption. They didn't like that idea. They said, no, one of us is the mom that just dated, the other one is the mom that's the biological mom. And so um, we did the first case where both moms got recognized, um, again, using the Parentage Act and the Equal Protection Clause to Mm -hmm. argue that both legally should be recognized as moms. And the court agreed. And so that is an option for um, lesbian mothers that want to use reciprocal IVF. That is where one's genetic mom, the other's gestational mom. Right. So, And I don't recall, was that before the... Uh, form where they could both just be listed on the birth certificate? It, it, it was, okay. yeah. Although, of course, you still want to do either an order parentage or a step-parent right. adoption. Um, and there's some argument there because adoptions are, the U.S. Supreme Court says adoption orders have to be given full faith and credit throughout mm-hmm. the United States, whereas we don't have the same ruling for an order of parentage. But with the Heyman case, they both felt like an order of parentage secured both moms. Right. So today we are talking about why marriage equality still does not equal equality, and we're talking about um, LGBTQI issues. We're about to go to the break, but remember, call into the show, 804-454-1366, with any of your questions about this issue. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. Now, back to Raising the Bar. We are back. This is Raising the Bar, Law Talk radio show, and this is Colleen Quinn. Um, I'm an attorney with Locke and Quinn, and with me, 
is Katie Kitstein, also of Locke and Quinn. And Katie and I are talking today about um, why marriage equality does not still mean equality mm-hmm. and LGBTQI issues. And by the way, a lot of people um, don't really understand what those initials stand for, but um, L is for lesbian, G is for gay, um, B is for bisexual, um, T is for transgender or transsexual, um, Q is for questioning or queer, and I is for inquiring. But a lot of times people... Um, don't always understand what those are for. And if you want to call into the show about um, this uh, topic, please call in at 804-454-1366. So let's talk, Katie, a little bit about some transgender issues, especially because the Gavin Grimm case was in the paper with the bathroom issues. Um, But in Virginia, how does it work if a transgender person um, wants to, uh, to basically change their sex as indicated on the birth certificate. Right. So you can change, uh, Virginia does have a statute allowing for a change of gender marker on a birth certificate, um, similar to a change of name on a birth certificate. Um, And there is actually a form for that now. It's pretty recently um, been issued by the Virginia Supreme Court that people can use. Um, So the statute that allows for a change of gender marker on a birth certificate says that you can change your gender marker when you provide evidence to the court that your gender has been changed by medical procedure. Okay. That's what the statute says. It doesn't right. define medical procedure. <laughs> There's no further clarity about, you know, specifically what, you know, is this, you know, hormones? Is this, you know, psychological treatment? Is this surgery? Um, so there's, there's... So you don't have to like completely change everything either. It is unclear. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that that's one of the, I think, issues and concerns um, for, you know, people who are um, working in this area of the law and, and changing birth certificates um, for transgender individuals. Um, basis, you know, we just kind of have this vague statutory language and nothing interpreting it. Right. Um, so, you know, it is something people have been doing. Generally, you, um, if people are doing it on their own, um, pro se, you know, without an attorney, um, you, you know, go to the court, they have the form that you fill out. Um, they've got the name change forms. They've also got the gender marker change forms. Um, and you have to include usually an affidavit from your doctor saying, you know, your gender has been changed by medical procedure. I'm the treating provider. You know, I affirm that this is true. Um, so it's they, supposed to be simple. It, it is supposed to be simple. Right. Um, and it's supposed to be something that people can do without having to pay an attorney generally. Um, the issue is, one, we have this kind of vague statutory language, um, which leaves it up to a judge to determine if this doctor affidavit is it's enough or if right. they want more. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of have this subjective issue of, all right, what judge am I going to land? Is this something that's going to go through easily or is this something that's going to turn into a fight? Um, so that's, that's your one kind of... It's, it can be very judge-dependent with um, with this weird language. And so sometimes you want to take that into consideration when you're considering, you know, if you have an option of where to file. Where to file, right. Yeah, that, that might, might be have a more think. friendly forum in a certain right. city or county than right. another one. And right. if you're out of state, if you live out of state but have a Virginia birth certificate, then the um, code says you can file in Richmond um, Circuit Court. So... Um, then the other issue is that, um, pretty recently the Department of Vital Records has decided that they would like to be served for every petition to amend a birth certificate, whether for change of gender marker or not, just they, they want to be served when you're doing an order to amend a birth certificate, which is a little bit interesting because now we have this extra hoop of, first of all, we have a lot of people who don't quite understand what that means or how to do that. So they're having to get a lawyer involved to figure out how do I serve vital records? What does this mean? Um, 
And then that prompts some judge, you know, then Vital Records has to file. And if they get served, then they have to file an well, answer. They get the Attorney General's office involved, Yeah, then right? the Attorney General's office has to file an answer saying, like, we have no objection to this or, you know, we have an opinion on it. Um, so now you're kind of, the Attorney General's office gets to have an opinion on all of these cases. Um, and then sometimes the fact that you're serving Vital Records prompts courts to, you know, say, okay, well, we're going to have a hearing on this, which is, Again, it's an extra step. It's an extra something people may— More in attorney fees. Yeah, more in right. attorney fees if you've gotten a lawyer involved at this point. Um, and so what, you know, I think was envisioned as a fill out the form, attach your affidavit, you know, get this done like you do a name change, um, has become a little more complex. And you have kind of all of these different hands in the pot of people who get to decide if your petition— is good enough, and if they, you know, right. and, and, and there's so, also, I think, it's in, there are inconsistency in the courts too in terms of whether vital records has to be served or not. Yes, there is yeah. some inconsistency inconsistency in the courts with whether or not they require that. Um, and you, it, it's, I think it makes people nervous because it's very dependent on the judge you get. And you know, currently we have a um, attorney general's office that I think is has been tried to be pretty LGBTQI friendly, um, and you know. Is, is not really right. objecting I mean, to these. Mark Herring has supported marriage equality and, and yeah. you know, Bostick v. Rainey. And so I, I think generally AG's office does want to be LGBT friendly. Right. But by putting themselves in the position of saying we get to file an answer on all of these, you know, what happens if we have a flip in the AG's office next time we have an, an election and all of a sudden they decide they want to crack down on these a little bit more and get really more into what does this change by medical procedure mean. And so I, I think that it um, it makes individuals nervous because I, we've seen a kind of a rush of, you know, transgender clients who really want to get this done quickly before, um, before there's, before a, there's any there's changes. Change. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> change in administration. Yeah. So let's talk about, so we're talking about transgender, let's talk about Gavin Grimm and... Right. Um, and the bathroom case uh, there, because um, basically, um, I, th- I think y- you probably are more familiar with mm-hmm. the case than I am, but um, basically, you know, Gavin was was fighting to be able to use the, the boys' bathroom right, because high um, Gavin identified male. Um, and so basically, that kind of went up the beanpole mm-hmm. to, the, um, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, so there was, um, and I think the basis for it was there's some DOJ guidance on uh, on how schools should right. From, that was under the Obama administration, right, from the Department of Justice saying, um, you know, that that gave Gavin Grimm some legal leverage in this fight to be able to, you know, use use the boys' bathroom in his in his high school, um, and so it was fighting this all the way up through the courts, all the way up through the courts, and then um, our national administration changed and this DOJ guidance got revoked. Um, and when the DOJ guidance got revoked, the courts kind of said, okay, well this, you know, now we have to send it back down um, for you guys to reconsider in light of this, you know, different position of the Department of Justice. And at that point, Gavin had been fighting this for so long that um, I believe what happened is he essentially graduated and this was kind of not an issue that got resolved while he was still in high school. Right. So it kind of just got left hanging there yeah. in limbo. Whereas the North Carolina um, a bathroom bill, mm-hmm. um, of course, that one uh, got passed, but then um, was so controversial with so many groups um, saying, well, we're not going to now do our convention in North Carolina. We're not going to do business in North Carolina, et cetera that um, basically they repealed a lot of the more damaging parts of that statute. That that was kind of interesting to me because you didn't have a legal court reaction to whether or not this law was, you know, constitutional or, you know, 
didn't quite get there. You just had kind of capitalism at work. Right, right. So you had a, a, enough of a push just by yeah. the public to say— Sometimes it's not always courts and statutes. It's just business and money that um, can influence some of these things because they they pretty quickly did repeal parts of that controversial law. Yeah. Um, and then I know we—there was a brief buzz about Virginia trying to pass a similar law again because the Gavin Grimm case originated out of Virginia and got a lot of national attention um, that I think— a lot of these state legislatures to say, oh, well, we've never had a law about this before, but let's go ahead and now make a law about it. Um, so why don't you talk about that? Because that was uh, Bob Marshall's bathroom bill that he tried to get passed. Yes, and- longstanding delegate in the Virginia legislature tried to pass a bathroom bill um, that I believe what he tried to get passed was a bill saying that you had to use the bathroom that matched your gender marker on your original birth certificate, which is for a variety of reasons. I mean, when you when you change your birth certificate, your original birth certificate's not publicly right, available. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I don't quite know what the procedure for this was gonna be, how you how law enforcement would find out what was on someone's original birth certificate. You also have the issue of, you know, some people being born intersex and they maybe don't have a gender marker initially or they, you know, get it changed, you know, within the first year of life. And so, I mean, you just have a lot of these um, interesting situations where that, it the bill didn't make a, lot of, make a lot of sense. sense right. um, so it, it did not pass um, in the Virginia legislature. And then as probably people saw in the news, Delegate Marshall um, got bumped out of the seat that he had occupied for years and years and years by Danica Rome, um, who with a, <laughs> slightly ironically um, is our first transgender delegate in the Virginia legislature. So, right. so some people saw that. Lots of changes yes. happening. <laughs> so remember today we are talking about LGBTQI issues, um, why marriage equality still does not mean equality, and uh, discrimination issues um, where uh, there still is a lack of protections for LGBTQI families. So let's talk a little bit, Katie, about um, discrimination in employment law mm-hmm. and where things are going now um, with uh, protections for uh, LGBT families and also um, transgender presentation cases. So let's talk a little bit about the protections there. Right. So um, this is something that's been a question for a while since even before marriage equality is, um, you know, what what sorts of protections did LGBT individuals have um, in the workplace. And a lot of it was maybe dependent on state law. Um, Of course, most um, employment protections derive from federal law. And, you know, people think of the ADA and Title VII, which I know we've discussed on this show before. Um, So there's not a specific federal law that says you can't be discriminated against on the basis of your sexual orientation or, you know, gender presentation. Um, so there was there there have been attempts over the years to pass um, I think it's ENDA the Employment Non Discrimination Act that never really um, got passed in the federal government. But the other approach um, has been for um, attorneys, you know, for these people to say, you know, we don't need a new law. We already have Title VII that um, prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex, and that umbrella includes sexual orientation and gender presentation. Um, And so that's kind of been the other approach to this is to say, you know what, we already have a law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of of these things, um, and and that's Title VII. Right, and the EEOC has been very supportive of interpreting 
Title VII discrimination based on sex to include sexual yes. orientation. Um, and then you have the case, you've got a case out of the Seventh Circuit mm-hmm. and you've got a case out of the Second Circuit now mm-hmm. that basically say sexual orientation will be protected. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about a case that we have um, going on, um, the OP case with the school district where we have um, a uh, an individual who is not transgender, right? Um, but um, has a transgender presentation, presents somewhat male in in some ways. Yeah, I think, and, and I don't, yeah, I don't even think it's a transgender presentation. It's just not um, feminine not, in the way that the, right it doesn't conform to, yeah, to feminine true. female standards. Doesn't you know doesn't basically appear in a you know wearing a dress you right know, exactly being, being more what we consider um, um, the qualities of. Of a, of a female. And she's she's been pretty explicitly told, you know, um, when she's had these issues with her, you know, the higher-ups, you know, the reason that we're having some of these issues with you is we don't, you know, you don't fit into the culture. We don't, you know, agree with your lifestyle. I mean, they've, you know, they've said, I'm uncomfortable with, the, you know— Right, we don't like the way you dress. We don't and, like the way you dress. Maybe yeah. if you put on makeup, maybe if you, you know, wore dresses every once in a while, didn't wear tennis shoes, um, you know, things that other teachers— you know, no one would ever say that to them. Right. Their teachers are wearing tennis shoes and may or may not wear makeup, but it's just the her overall presentation. Um, it's been made clear to her that it's a problem for her supervisors, even though it's not it's not unprofessional. She's, you know, dresses nice and, you know, professional, nice clothes. It's just not um, as feminine as um, her her bosses would like. And so, um, and they've, they've been pretty clear that that's, that that's the problem. And so, for a case like that, you sort of have two different um, claims you make there. I mean, you have discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation if they've said, you know, we don't like you because you are not straight, because you're gay, because you're lesbian. Um, right. Well, and also, you know, when just disclosing whether she's married and saying right. she's a wife, mm-hmm. you know, so that is on the basis of sexual orientation. It is because you fill out your W-2s and right. you, you yeah. know, list your spouse and yeah. all of us, you know, you, you're out essentially right. just because you're filling out your paperwork. Um and but also in her case, it's discrimination on the basis of gender presentation, which right. we have some case law on that as well that says that falls under Title Seven, and you can't discriminate against someone because they don't fit the mold of what you think male or female should look like and should and should be and should present as. And so that actually, I think some of those cases were a little bit earlier than the cases um, that included sexual orientation um, as a as a protected class. So. Um, so there was actually a little bit of protection for either, you know, gender nonconforming or transgender individuals earlier in the employment context than there was for, um, you know, people who felt discriminated against on the basis of their sexual orientation. But now we've got a little bit of case law that puts both of them under that umbrella. Um, but like you said, it's Seventh Circuit, Second Circuit, and EEOC. Right. We don't have a U.S. Supreme Court we opinion, and we don't have anything in the Fourth Circuit, which governs Virginia. Right. Um, but that it does seem to be um, where things are headed is more, you know, slowly but surely more protections for um, LGBT individuals yeah. in the workplace. But then again, we have to remember that um, Title Seven only applies to employers, you know, that have 15 or more individuals. Right. And so you've got some limitations there as well. Right. Not everyone's covered. And you also, when you have these EEOC decisions, that's a very administration-based thing. Right. And like with Gavin Grimm's case with the DOJ, they can have a position one year that flips it's changed. the other year. Yeah. Right. So I think that makes people a really bit need nervous. a U.S. Supreme Court opinion um, to follow the Second and Seventh Circuit to kind of put some 
to really put clarity, yeah. clarity on that. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, discrimination in uh, the provision of goods and services. Mm-hmm. Um, because most people have heard about the Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop yes. case, right? <laughs> yes. And are. so basically in that case, um, two gay, uh, gay guys in Colorado getting married and they basically go to the Masterpiece Cake Shop and say, we'd like for you to make us a cake. Mm-hmm. And they basically, the Masterpiece Cake Shop says, no, for religious reasons, um, we don't believe in gay marriage. And so we're not going to make you a cake. Um, Colorado happens to have a specific statute pr- prohibiting discrimination. Um, and we don't have anything like that in Virginia. Right. So this is going to be interesting because the U.S. Supreme Court is supposed to come out with a decision um, in June of this year on the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. But even if the U.S. Supreme Court says, no, you you need to follow, if if you're going to be providing services to the public, um, you need to follow Colorado's statute prohibiting discrimination, um, that still won't necessarily apply to Virginia because Virginia doesn't have a similar statute like Colorado. Um, and then, you know, we had uh, the case recently where we had a transgender female. So, so um, biologically male, mm-hmm. um, but identifies female, okay, and appears female, um, going to get uh, a, her car repaired mm-hmm. at a body shop. And the body shop basically says, no, we're not going to service you. We're not going to uh, uh, tend to your car um, because you're you're transgender and that doesn't suit with us. Um, so basically she did not have any recourse under Virginia law um, other than potentially uh, we do have an insulting words statute, but that needs to be like words that tend to incite violence, et cetera. Right. So that's kind of a stretch um, right. in that case. Um, so really no protection in that regard right. in terms of the discrimination in goods and services right now in Virginia. Right. Um, so let's kind of carry that a little bit further and talk about, um, hate crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because we had the case too of the gentleman, um, who in his employment, um, had, uh, the crap beaten out of him. Yeah, people. And then. Right. Assaulted him. Yeah. And basically the, and that employee had also told the temp agency that hired him and apparently, um, you know, the the employer that used the temp agency to hire him, that he didn't like gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is a federal criminal mm-hmm. statute, um, but there's, you know, a lot of nuances of showing interstate commerce and that the federal statute are under state law, but there is a federal hate crime statute mm-hmm. um, that that employee was convicted under. We also were able um, to have a civil case claiming negligent hiring and negligent retention by the employer. Right. Um, this guy actually had a pretty extensive had a, history. Of right. He had violence. a criminal record of yeah. violence and everything. So he never should have been hired and put into that position. Um, but again, more limitations for, you know, LGBTQI individuals in the employment setting. Um, so uh, again, Virginia doesn't have a whole lot yeah. in the way of protecting such individuals from uh hate crimes right and and i mean there has been some you know like you said we don't have a lot of virginia laws on the books but we have had some 
I think our current AG's office policy for state employees is that they explicitly say we don't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or, or gender identity. Right. Um, but again, that's something that's more of a policy. And a lot of, you know, workplaces have internal policies right. where they say we don't discriminate, but that's not, I mean, that's not a law. If a place chooses not to follow their own policy, then they've just chosen not to follow their own policy. I mean, it may give may give you some recourse higher up the chain. Um, and you do have protection in certain localities. Mm-hmm. Um, Alexandria, Charlottesville, and Arlington County mm-hmm. have all issued local ordinances, human rights ordinances that protect um, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and there's some argument under our Human Rights Act, again, like the EE, like under Title VII, that discrimination on the basis of sex is should be expanded. Um, right. But we again, we don't have really any case law in Virginia mm-hmm. under our Human uh, Rights Act um, as well. So um, again, still uh, a lot of uncertainty. And if you live in Alexandria, Charlottesville, and Arlington County, right. <laughs> then you've got a, you know a little bit more protection. Um, but not necessarily in all the rest of Virginia. Absolutely. So, um, so basically, uh, again, in terms of uh, housing discrimination, mm-hmm. um, we've uh, again got some deficiencies um, in the law mm-hmm. as well in terms of housing. Uh, again, federal law um, being a little bit stronger than um, state law. Yeah. And but again, I think you're still relying on you know, discrimination on the basis of sex expanding to cover these categories, which is not always a clear-cut distinction that we have a lot of case law on. So right. you're, you're kind of having to argue the, argue the meaning in a lot of these cases where you're applying federal law. Yeah, so you've got the Federal Fair Housing Act, mm-hmm. which is an, enacted as um, part of Title VII, and it's enforced by HUD. Um, but it, it, again, does not explicit, explicitly prohibit discrimination against LGBTQ people and their mm-hmm. families. Um so again, you've got to make those same arguments that are being made under that line of EEOC cases mm-hmm. under Title VII. We are going to close out the show here soon. So if you do have any questions, call into the show, 804-454-1366. We are talking about um, inequality for LGBTQ families despite marriage equality. There still are a lot of lack of protections. Um, so another area uh, that we hadn't really hit upon, but before we close out the show, um, Katie, is going to be anti-bullying um, right. laws and everything. So there is a little bit of protection there Yes, um, with regard to the anti-bullying. Um, so all school districts in Virginia are supposed to implement policies and receive specific provisions regarding bullying of LGBTQI individuals. Um, but bullying in Virginia is defined as any aggressive or unwanted behavior that's intended to harm, intimidate, or humiliate the victim um, and involves a real or perceived power imbalance between the aggressor and aggressors and victim, and is repeated over time and causes severe emotional trauma. That's a whole lot of stuff. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the statute does specifically include cyberbullying. So mm-hmm. when you get these um, Facebook posts or you get somebody that's, you know, uh, being picked up, picked on right. through social media, um, through the internet, mm-hmm. um, there is some protection um, there. Um, And there are a number of school boards and localities that, again, have passed some non-discrimination ordinances, um, but those only cover about 25% of the public school students and employees at this point. A movement in Virginia toward um, protections, but we 
but still not full protection. Right. And I think a lot of this is this uh, discrepancy, like we've sort of talked about throughout the program, of we have court cases and local ordinances and department policies that aren't—and and then we also have laws that aren't necessarily keeping up with— the changes, you know, that are implemented by the courts or the, you know, administrations or things like that. And so we've got, um, it leads to gray areas and it leads to uh, things for people to fight about. You know, if the statute says one thing and the courts say another, um, that's where you kind of end up with more court cases, I right. think. Right, You know, so we had the marriage equality case, but it wasn't the last one. It was followed up by the um, birth certificate case and now the cake shop case. And I'm sure we're going to have a slew of other, of other cases of other down cases. The, the pipe, including um, eventually, hopefully, a U.S. Supreme Court decision um, with regard to protection in employment mm-hmm. um, under Title VII and that you know, retaliating on the basis of sex, mm-hmm. including on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity or gender presentation, so that there is that um, expansive reading. Right, and that of does Title seem to VII. be the, the trend as opposed to trying to pass a separate law that explicitly names, you know, protected classes for sexual orientation and, you know, um, gender identity, just trying to use the laws we already have in place. And Right. Well, if you have a U.S. Supreme Court decision that interprets that on Title VII, then we don't have to worry about the EEOC guidance changing depending on who's in right. office, who's, who's, who's in, you know, whether the Republicans or the Democrats have office at that yep. given time. And you don't have to worry about Congress actually making a change to Title VII because mm-hmm. I don't see that happening. <laughs> so we are closing out today's show. Join us next week again for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk Radio Show every Wednesday at 9 a.m. And also catch us on the Lock and Quinn Raising the Bar Facebook page and website.